Okay, let's turn to Romans again. And I don't know how far we're going to get, so we may, we may go to Galatians. I don't know. But Romans, we might land around 9 somewhere. Brian, you're ready anywhere, right? I like that shirt. I can't. I'm blinded. Tracy, I'm blinded. What kind of shirt did you get him? A tie-dyed shirt. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Who did? It's awesome. I don't blame you. It's nice. They, they, they did it? Really, they did it? That's awesome. I'll pay them for one if they want to make me one. Are they? <laughs> uh, okay. Romans, really Romans anywhere. We're going to continue with God-approved livingness. God-approved livingness, which I have made an acronym of. And tonight we're going to kind of look at that subject, if we get the time. We may look at that subject as it's distinct from. It's not entirely distinct from, but there is a distinction between that and salvation itself. Salvation itself. Versus, when I do versus in my notes, if I'm serious and it's really contrary to the other thing, I underline it. If it's just contradictory to something else. If it's contrary but there can be reconciliation, I do this versus. And if it's not really contrary and may have a lot of commonality, I put versus like that. That's because when you take that much notes, things happen to your mind. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in the name of our Savior, your Son, in whom you are well pleased. And we're grateful that he is the righteous one. We're grateful that he is the faithful one. We're grateful that your faithfulness to your faithful Son means that we all receive a reward that is calculated on the basis of grace alone. And we're so grateful for this and so grateful for the insights you're allowing us. And may we, as we grow in grace, as we walk in the light, and as we see light in your light, that you'll protect us from oversights of insights and encourage us not to flee or take a flight from insight whether it's because it challenges our traditional views or whether it challenges our self and our self-life in the flesh. We thank you for this privilege. We commit ourselves to you tonight, our bodies to you, for the purpose of the renovation of our thinking and the transformation of our mind. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ and walking in the Spirit. Amen. This term, God-approved livingness, I wanted you to know that there is this word livingness, and it has been used. It has been used in the English language since about the 1600s. But probably the best use of it is by one of my favorite theologians, Jürgen Moltmann. He wrote an Among other books, he wrote an autobiography called The Broad Place. It's well worth reading. There's as much theology in his autobiography as there is in many of his theology books. But in a paragraph on page 350 of A Broad Place, he writes this. The experience of God deepens the experience of life. It does not reduce them. That is the experiences of life. I'll start again. The experience of God deepens the experiences of life. It does not reduce them. For it awakens the unconditional yes to life. The more I love God, the more gladly I exist. The more immediately and wholly, W-H-O-L-O-Y, I exist. The more I sense the living God, the inexhaustible source of life and eternal livingness, 
It's a wonderful word because it captures not only life but the living. It captures the quality of the living that we have with the experience of God, the triune God, with the experience of fellowship, with the experience of the unconditional yes to life. On top of that, what we're dealing with now is a, what I call another abbreviation, a DOC. This is good for note takers, maybe. I call it a DOC. I just did that myself. I went through the whole round of paper up here. D-O-C, a differentiation of consciousness. That's what happens when the word of God comes into our consciousness. It differentiates that which is our consciousness because the word of God is alive and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It differentiates things in our minds so that we can think accurately and think precisely, especially about theological concepts. And a doctrinal or a differentiation of consciousness has to be brought about, and I'm speaking of our own place right here, our own time, uh, in us, has to be brought about in us by distinguishing terms within a semantic domain of words that are related to this root word, dikaio. Dikaio terms. And that's dikaio dash because there's dikaio sune, there is dikaiosis, there is dikaio, there is dikaio sune, theu. There is an entire semantic domain of these words. And most notably in Romans. The word for justification is only in Romans and Galatians in Paul's writings because there he's battling out something that he doesn't have to battle for in Ephesians, Colossians, and other epistles, even in 1 Corinthians where he does use the term, once you were these kinds of people listing a whole bunch of egregious type of sinners and idolaters, once you were this kind of community that cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but now you're washed. Now you are sanctified. Now you are justified, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so there is an ongoing aspect of rectification by the Spirit of God. There is a God-approved livingness that is only accomplished by the Spirit of God. It is God in you, both willing and doing his own good pleasure. And so there is righteousness, a, an entire domain of words. Romans and Galatians is where Paul is embattled with this. The righteousness of God, as we've been seeing, and this is repetitive, but with some creative twist tonight. The righteousness of God is what he has done in delivering his son by his son's faithfulness. And it is also what God does in rectifying the ungodly. Rectification, a better term for dikaio than mere justification, is a setting right of something or of someone by God. It's a setting right of something that's wrong. A setting right of someone by God. Rectitude then. Rectitude is righteousness considered as God approved living. And that's really the case. This is all kind of going to run into Romans 4. This is extremely important momentum for the interpretation of Romans 4, which in turn is a left flank which invades Romans 9. I'm going to take a couple little foray into that tonight and see how God-approved livingness connects with and is distinguished from universal salvation, universal savingness of God. Rectitude, by definition, is the thinking and praxis. Praxis is not quite practice, but it's the modus operandi, the modus vivendi, the way we live. You can say, I am of Israel. 
And you could be of Israel, hereditarily speaking. You could be of Israel because you have the strain from Abraham down. Or you could say, I am Israel because I am a lover of God. Listen up, Israel. You will love the Lord your God. Israel in praxis, Israel in deed, literally, and in truth, are the lovers of God. And that's not a legalistic thing at all, because in Romans 5, 5, the love of God is poured out in our hearts. The boldest statement Paul ever made, and I have to make it again, I'm coming around full circle to it, is when he identifies the people of God, Jews and Gentiles alike, as the Israel of God. Not just a Jewish remnant, but the people of God, the Israel of God, And one day, all of humanity, in all of its times, diachronically and simultaneously, will be the Israel of God. Rectitude, then, is thinking, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and praxis of the one who is being set right, transformed, liberated. Rectitude, therefore, is a one-word definition For a God-approved livingness. God-approved livingness cannot be brought about by the human doing of deeds in compliance with the Mosaic or the Sinaitic law. Nor can a God-approved living be brought about by the human act of believing. The human act of believing is brought about by God's act of rectification and by God's activity in the believer's rectitude. Rectification, also known as justification, is by God's uncontingent grace. God does it without meeting a contingency in the objects at all. It is God acting in uncontingent grace, rooted in his unconditional love. People talk about unconditional love, but they don't really understand uncontingent grace. Unconditional grace. They say God loves you unconditionally, but he only justifies you conditionally. And that's really kind of a, well, it's not precise thinking. It's not really a mind that's been distinguished or differentiated by the word of God. The human act of believing is brought about by God's act of rectification and by God's activity in rectitude. So justification, we'll use that phrase interchangeably with rectification, is by God's uncontingent grace through the fidelity of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus. Rectification, also known as justification, is God's uncontingent grace through the fidelity of Jesus, his son, and royal representative, as we're learning from the Psalms. Rectitude is by the Spirit of our God. Also, 1 Corinthians 6.11, as Philippians 2.13 puts it, God is in you both to will and to do God's good pleasure. God-approved livingness is only possible through a liberated will and through God acting in the will. Faith is what pleases God, according to Hebrews 11:6. Faith is what pleases God. When Hebrews 11 defines faith, it makes no mention of it justifying the one who believes. It simply defines it as pleasing God. In other words, it is what God approves. Faith So God considers faith to be rectitude or God-approved livingness before Abraham's circumcision and after Abraham's circumcision. Because the unconditional promise with the universal horizon in your seed, all the families, all the families of the earth, as Patrick brought up last night. You have a differentiated consciousness, not just nations, but families of the earth. That's everybody will be blessed. In your seed, Christ, 
all the families of the earth in all of their times will be blessed if they believe. Do you catch that? It's not in there. It's not in there. It's an unconditional promise with a universal horizon uttered by God to Abraham. Abraham believed that promise. His whole life was influenced and radically affected by his surrender to that promise. His life and his livingness was a full trust in God's ability to fulfill his promise. And therefore, God approved of Abraham's overall livingness. He did so before circumcision in Genesis 15, 6. He did so commanding Abraham to walk before me and be perfect in Genesis 17, 1, before circumcision. After circumcision, which God commanded of him and his household in Genesis 17, 10, he continued in a God-approved livingness. If Abraham lived in a God-approved livingness by a faith that the promise awakened in him, and if Abraham continued to live in a God-approved livingness by the faith that God awakened in him after circumcision, then what does circumcision mean or uncircumcision? Paul concludes circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing. In Galatians 5, where he has a similar argument, Galatians 5, 6. Galatians 5, 6 says circumcision and uncircumcision are non-factors. What really matters is a faith made effective by Love. Love is what makes effective this faith. It's what ignites this faith. And it's this faith that is a God-approved livingness. When people freak out, Jesus says to them in Mark 5.36, don't be afraid, only believe. He doesn't say only believe and you'll be saved. He just says only believe. In Isaiah 7, 9, it says the same thing. Only believe and you'll be established, not justified, but established in a God-approved livingness. All of this is important momentum toward the interpretation of Romans 4. And I'm going to go a little bit different route than Douglas Campbell did in his grueling treatment of Romans 4, to be quite honest, but, but a good treatment. So in Hebrews eleven six, it's what God approves. So God considers faith to be rectitude in Abraham, both before Abraham's circumcision and after. So when Paul's talking to the Romans, some were circumcised, some, weren't uns- some were uncircumcised. But he says, neither one matters. God has justified... The Gentiles by the faithfulness of Christ, and he justifies the Jews through the faithfulness of Christ. The same faithfulness in Romans 3.30. One God, same faithfulness. So what's at issue here is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but a faith that is working or made effective by love. Love has to get out in front or behind and in front of faith. Love is behind it because it creates it, or I'll say it evokes it. It ignites it. God's love ignites faith. But it's also behind faith because faith works with love. And when a person becomes a lover of God, they are Israel in praxis, in deed and in truth, as the scripture says. In deed. So someone can say, I'm Israel because I'm descended from Abraham. And Jesus said, maybe you are his seed, but you're not his children because... Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. I approved of his livingness, but strangely, you want to kill me. I do not approve of your livingness. You are of your father, the devil. I do not approve of the devil's livingness because he was a man killer from the beginning. I do not approve of Saul of Tarsus' livingness, even though he's blameless according to the righteousness or the rectitude that the law commands and demands in external means by external means I am not approving of Saul of Tarsus livingness and when I meet him I'll tell him Saul why are you persecuting me 
You can't say that, a, that someone is a, an Israelite in deed and in practice if he's killing people whom God calls the Israel of God. See, I'm trying to make the point with a little point edge on it. And again, as I said, I'm dropping another lens tonight. Maybe you'll see a little bit clearer until we get to 2020. I know one person looked it up last night. Brian Messick texted me in the morning, looked up 2 Chronicles 2020. Did you? You didn't? Oh. Guess you're not as attentive as Brian Messick. I'm sure Brian, this Brian Reed, you looked it up. Brian Reed looked it up. Don't compare yourself with him. He's just better than you, if you didn't look it up. <laughs> you know I'm kidding. He's, but he's a, there's a quiet student who's passed through some serious adversities and stayed true to the word of God, and I am extremely proud of you, Brian. Always. So then, God approved livingness which Brian Reed exemplifies, and many of you also, is living by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Here we're getting closer to the specific interpretation of Romans 4. Abraham is also spoken of in Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews 11, we have the only Specific definition for what faith is in the Bible. And if it's that important, you'd think the writer would say, if that's the way we're justified, that faith is the means of our justification. He didn't say that at all. He said, faith is the conviction of things not seen and the assurance of things hoped for. And that's the kind of trustful faithfulness that Abraham exemplified and God considered it to be rectitude. Faith is the inner conviction regarding unseen things and the inner assurance of things hoped for. God is pleased with the faith that he himself gifts to his people via the gospel. God approved livingness, G-A-L, which also happens to be a nice abbreviation for Galatians. Maybe a hint of things to come. Galatians is living by the faithfulness of the Son of God. It is participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us, loved us, Faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us. So we live by the faithfulness that's made effective by love. I don't frustrate the grace of God, Paul said. I don't frustrate the grace of God by making my faithfulness or any of my works, including the work of believing, the means of my justification. For then Christ has died for nothing. He's saying there in Galatians 2.20 that if you really understand grace and are not frustrating it, you understand that your justification came by the death of Christ, not by works or by believing. So you can see there's a blending here of Galatians and Romans. Galatians, or let's call it God-approved livingness, is participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God, in whom God the Father is pleased. God the Father is pleased with his Son. He's pleased with his faithfulness. So God the Father is pleased with the Son's faithfulness when it's in you. He approves. Again, it's participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God, which continues on in the corporate Christ. The corporeal Christ was faithful. His faithfulness continues in the corporeal or the corporate Christ, which is you. 
And this faithfulness of the Son of God is the one, the Son of God is the one in whom the Father is well pleased, of whom the Father approves. God-approved livingness is only possible through a liberated will, which means a will no longer enslaved by sin or by the law as co-opted by sin. We're learning that from Romans 7. Also known as a yoke of slavery, Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ freed you. It was for the liberation of your will that he freed you. So don't be entangled again with any more yoke of, yokes of slavery. G-A-L, God-approved livingness, is only possible through the Holy Spirit who brings about the rectitude that the law requires but cannot produce in its devotees, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. God, the Holy Spirit, pours that love of God out in our hearts, and that is what Lonergan rightly called God's gift of his own love. When that happens, you have Israel not only in name, but in praxis and in truth authentically. Because of the oversight of that insight, even some of my former friends, and they're still friends as far as I'm concerned, but friends in the ministry have misunderstood where I'm coming from with the Israel of God. We're coming around to it again. And it's either going to open the eyes of some or shut them for the rest of their lives. I don't know which. I'm always aware, incidentally, that I need to have my eyes open to something. I'm always open to that. I'm always open to that. I understand the joy of being wrong. And it's a book I'm reading right now, The Joy of Being Wrong. It's a... The only reason I'm still alive is because I'm joyful to be wrong. And I've been wrong. Quite happy about it, really, because God rectifies me when I'm wrong. Doesn't mean I'm going to go out and do wrong. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> now, the Holy Spirit creates the true identity of Israel as he pours out this love in our hearts. This hope that we have is not ashamed. That means it's not just a deferred anticipation put off. So it's a not yet, not yet, not yet. And it's not even really now and not yet. It's more like what Gerhard Abeling said, already or even now, but not yet completely. This hope isn't just some deferred expectation. This is going to happen someday, so wait for it, wait for it. Got it out. No, because at the, in the meantime, between now and the fulfillment of that, something's happening. The love of God is being poured out into your hearts. And that's what affirms this life. That's what makes this life truly worth living. It's the experience of God. The experience of love is the experience of God. He who abides in love abides in God. He who abides in God abides in love. And so the Holy Spirit creates the true identity of Israel, not by circumcision, but as he pours out this love in our hearts, making us the lovers of God, that is Israel in truth and deed, lovers of God. God makes all things to work together for the lovers of God, Israel. I has not seen what God has prepared for the lovers of God. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Romans 8.28. The Holy Spirit evokes and empowers a faith. Again, let me say this now. Listen up, Israel. Listen up, Israel. Deuteronomy 6.4. You will love the Lord your God. You, to be Israel in identity and praxis, means that you are lovers of God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that very utterance can't produce its obedience, and so I'll send the Holy Spirit to live in you and to fulfill this love. He said the same thing in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. 
The Holy Spirit evokes and empowers a faith that works by love. A faith that works by love is God-approved livingness. It is rectitude. It's the rectitude that the law of Moses commands but cannot produce in its adherence because it's not strong enough to overcome the flesh or sin. Flesh with a capital F, sin with a capital S, meaning apocalyptic suprahuman powers. The law isn't strong enough to overcome those powers, but God is. God the Holy Spirit is. That's why God approved livingness is not through the law, but through the spirit. The law is weak. What the law could not do, God did in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. And so, the rectitude that the law of Moses commands but can't produce in its adherence, it can't produce because it's not strong enough to overcome the flesh or sin or to end the reign of death. The law can't give life. It is the rectitude, this G-A-L, that is produced in those who walk in the spirit, who walk in the spirit. The same spirit who made Christ alive from the dead And they do not walk in the power of their unaided humanity or our flesh, small f-l-e-s-h, unaided humanity. Those who walk or carry out their lives in the flesh, that is their unaided, unhelped, unempowered humanity, are subject and enslaved, whether willingly or not, to the impulsive desire of the flesh, which again, that's another apocalyptic power of the flesh, a cosmic apocalyptic actor and power. Those who walk in the spirit, as Galatians 5.16 says, but more notably for us, Romans 8.4, do not fulfill the impulsive desire of the flesh because the spirit is stronger than the impulsive desire of the flesh, but the law is weak. It's impotent and bankrupt. You may not understand this teaching so far because there's a lot of principles going into it. But again, it's the dropping of a lens, a dropping of a lens till we get to 2020. 2020 actually describes God-approved livingness by people called Israel. Something in there about faith in God and believing the prophets and you'll prosper. The Spirit's desire, as Galatians 5.17 says, the Spirit's impulse or desire is pitted against the desire of the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit so that a person can't do what they want in compliance with the law. For now, let's consider this phrase, the sons of God. How can I make that link? The sons of God, plural. Because the sons of God are led by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. The Spirit leads them. He starts behind them and evokes faith and love, but he goes ahead of them and leads them along. It's the Spirit of the Shepherd. Sometimes you experience the spirit of the shepherd and don't even know who you're experiencing. Most of God's people today are wandering around like sheep without a shepherd, even though they have a pastor. They're confused. The sons of God are led by the spirit and not under the law, says Galatians 5.18 compared with Romans 8, 14 to 16. The sons of God belong to Jesus Christ. Those who belong entirely to Christ Jesus, says Galatians 5, 24, crucify the flesh with its desires and its passions. That's not crucifying the lower nature. That's crucifying the apocalyptic actor called the flesh. 
which is equivalent to the cosmos itself, the present evil age. Why? Because Paul said, the world, the cosmos is crucified to me and I to the world. There's an equivalency of the flesh as a suprahuman actor and enslaver and the cosmos itself, the present evil age. The spirit stands against the reign of death. The spirit stands against the power of the flesh and the power of sin. And the spirit is victorious against it because Christ was victorious over sin and death. In other words, to them, those that belong to Christ and know it, the cosmos is crucified and they're crucified to the cosmos. The cosmos there is the evil age and its way of doing things whenever you're living in it. In the days what Paul was living in it, the days the evil age was defined by a message of justification by the works of the law. Which Paul says is just the same. If you guys are going to go back to the observances of days and times and dates and the things that the law commands, you're no different than when you were in the Druid cult, when you were idolaters, and when you were watching the stars and watching the planets and your horoscopes and all the rest of it. It's no, there's no difference at all. The weak, he says, asthenes, impotent, and beggarly, bankrupt elements. Why are you turning back there? We're going to go to that shortly, I think. In other words, both the cosmos, Galatians 6.14, and the flesh, Galatians 5.24, describe the present passing evil age, which God has invaded. Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. If Paul wrote 13 epistles and never mentioned hell or warned against it, then I ask why. That's because there's no mention of hell in the Law and the Prophets. There's no mention of hell, an immortal place of the dead, in any of the Old Testament or New Testament. So Paul is saying God came into this world in Christ to save us from this evil age, not from hell. If he was going to save us from an eternal punishment, you think Paul would have probably told us about it? No, he comes to save us from this evil age. And there are millions of people wandering around this planet like sheep without a shepherd, and they'll tell you all day long that they're Christians and they're saved from hell, but they're right smack dab in the middle of this evil age and not delivered from it at all. Now, I'm not saying that in a boastful gladness about them. I'm not saying that because I'm judging them. I'm just saying that because it's true. And it's a matter of compassion. Rectitude, or GAL, is only possible through the cross of Christ. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. I was crucified with Christ. Also called instauration. Crucifixion with Christ, leading to a raising up to newness of life, as we've seen in Galatians, or rather in Romans 6.4. In Galatians 2.20, Paul describes G-A-L, God-approved livingness, as the I, quote, I, capital I, close quote, having been crucified with Christ and nevertheless as living, but Christ in me, not I, under the law, not I under the law enslaved to sin, But Christ lives in me. Not the law of sin in my members, but Christ in my eye. And the cross in my eye. I live a cross-eyed life. Not with Clarence the cross-eyed lion. I knew you were thinking of that. But the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb of God. 
If rectitude is by deeds that I accomplished in compliance with Moses' law or any other law, then Christ died for no reason. Living like Christ died for nothing is not living. It's being dead while we live and not even knowing it. Rectification and rectitude come by Jesus Christ's death and by our baptism into his death, not by water, but by the Holy Spirit, also known as our co-crucifixion with Christ. The antinomy, then, or the opposing two laws are not between our works and our faith, but between the works of the law and Christ's death. Christ's death, which is his blood, in Romans 5, 9, has rectified us. We have been rectified, and we are being rectified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through his blood that was shed in the course of, and in fact, in the climax of his faithfulness to God. We are being rectified now by the Spirit of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, The church, where we are right now, we are in the field of a continuing rectification accomplished by the Spirit of our God. So it becomes a reality, not just a judicial fiction. If you make justification just a judicial imputation, then your life is a fiction. We don't want that. We want truth. Our rectitude is faithfulness working by love that is the result of waiting by faith in the Spirit for the realization of that rectitude. Who are the sons of God then, led by the Spirit? Listen carefully to this, and I'm going to try to plow through this a little bit and then repeat it someday down the road. One of my new prized possessions is the N-E-T-S, not the N-E-T, the N-E-T-S, the New English translation of the Septuagint, much better than the old ones and the Sir Lancelot Brenton ones and others. Hosea chapter 1 verse 10 says this, and the number of the sons of Israel was like the sand of the sea. You can't number that. That's the grains. Here's a project for you. Here's your high school project. Here's your college project. Here's your PhD project. Count the grains of the sand under all the oceans of the planet. And on all the beaches of the planet. Then come back and I'll give you your grade. The number of the sons of Israel is like the sands of the sea, which shall not measure, not be measured nor numbered, it says. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They too shall be called sons of the living God. And then in verse 11 it says, And the sons of Judas, or Judah, and the sons of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall set up for themselves one realm, one realm, one kingdom. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. I don't have time to describe what Jezreel is, but it has to do with the name of the oldest son of Hosea by Gomer. And it means God scatters and God sows. As he scattered them under Jehu, as the Fawcett Bible Dictionary says, so at Jezreel, by the Assyrian deportation, now he'll sow them again, and Jezreel, representing a similar sound to Israel, great shall be the day of Jezreel, is the universal restoration of all of Israel in all of its time, all of humanity in all of its sequences and times. All of creation, says Romans 8.23, waits, even screams with labor pains in anticipation of the apocalyptic revelation of the sons of God, plural. When Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. The sons of God, plural. And the sons of God's appearance in glory is the eschatological Israel. The Israel of God that will be comprised of all humanity, indwelt and inundated by Christ, the life-giving spirit. This will be the moment when all times become simultaneous, when all things and all beings are recapitulated under the liberating headship of God's Messiah, 
Jesus. You say, where are the verses for that? There's a hundred of them. That's why I'm, what I'm doing now is consolidating. This is like a jazz innovation thing. I'm not giving you the source of the verses. I will give them. There's a hundred of them in that paragraph I just gave you. So I can't just do all the quoting. I used to do that when I was a young preacher. When I was 28 and I was down here preaching, it was always, I quoted more verses, the numbers of the verses, than I talked about concepts. The Hosea component is very strong in Romans, and that's where I want to get to Romans 9.25, just for a moment. I've translated this. This is a dive into Romans 9. Romans 9 is so misunderstood by me. I like the way God's unraveling it, therefore. In the Hosea component in Romans is very strong. The Hosea story is a story of the restoration of God's people in Toto. God says, I'm going to give up Ephraim, which is a name for Israel. I'm giving them up. And then he said, how can I give them up? I can't give them up. Romans chapter 9, 25 Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10 are explicitly quoted by Paul back to back. 2.23 first, Hosea 1.10. Look what he says. As he says also in Hosea, I will call, and he named these people, not my people. I will call not my people over here, my people. And not loved, beloved. Christ is called the beloved one. I will call them beloved because they're in Christ is what he's saying. That's Hosea 2.23. In verse 26, and in the very place where they were told, you are not my people. Where was that? That was the cross. No, you're not my people, but yes, you are my people. You're not my people by the works of the law. You're my people by my unconditional love and uncontingent grace. In the same place where he says, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. That's why Galatians 3.26 must be interpreted this way. You are all sons of God, the sons of God, through the faithfulness of of Christ Jesus, not through your faith in Christ Jesus, but through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. And you who are the sons of God are also the Israel of God in praxis, indeed, because you walk according to a rule where there's undiscriminating love for Jews and Gentiles and circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean a damn thing, but a new creation means everything, Galatians 6.15. I'm sounding notes in a symphony that are going to come home someday soon. Now enter the voice of an objector. The voice of an objector. This reminds me so much of a Pentecostal service that a pastor friend of mine was describing. And I've related it to you several times probably, but some of you may not have heard it. They were quiet like a Quaker meeting and then you wait for inspiration. One person says, thus says the Lord, and he utters this statement. And then about one minute later, someone else says, no, thus says the Lord this, not that. And they got into this, they duked it out. Because one said, God said this, and the other said, no, God said that. And you're wondering, where's God? He's confused. But this is kind of like what's happening here. But Isaiah cries over Israel. Isaiah cries over Israel. Paul, you're talking about this universal eschatological restoration. All is, you say, see, people use this argument because they don't read all the way through to Romans eleven twenty six, where Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. Romans nine twenty seven. This is the voice of an apparently contradictory prophecy by Isaiah. Apparently, apparently, apparently. But Isaiah cries over Israel saying, though the number of the sons of Israel is as the grains of the sands of the sea, like Hosea said, only a remnant will be saved. You can just see the legalist. Right there says only a remnant will be saved. The rest of the sands of the sea are going to an eternal hell and burn 
and bake in the lake of fire just like that rich man. That's not it. For one thing, you haven't had a DOC of what's eschatology and what's history. Verse 28, for the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. He's going to complete and cut short what he does on earth, or literally in the land. This is taken from Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 in the Theodosian version, and Daniel 9, 26 is talking about 70 weeks of years. There's a limited time, and God's going to deal with Israel, and he's only going to save a remnant, even though Israel is as the sands of the sea. The passage is quoted as if, listen carefully, the passage is quoted as if it contradicts the total salvation of all of Israel. But the fact that a remnant exists in the present time, Romans 11, 5 and 6, follow the arrow, Romans 11, 5 to 6, even now, even now there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it's grace, it's no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. He then says this, the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. He's given it a time, 70 weeks of years, failing to recognize that when Jesus said forgiveness is 70 times 7, that that means total forgiveness of all of Israel in all of its times. But that's his interpretation of Daniel nine twenty four to 27. We don't want to go with Jesus' interpretation. The fact is, the fact that a remnant exists in the present time is indicative and representative of a final eschatological end-time salvation of all of Israel, accomplished at the cross, already accomplished at the cross, but fully manifested at the parousia, the coming of Christ, when all times will be simultaneous and that salvation will be diachronic across all time and take up all time. God is astride all time. He doesn't say, I wonder what's going to happen in 24 hours. He's already there. He's already present to your future as he's present to your past. He's omnipresent. So... In Romans 9.29, and just as Isaiah foretold, if the Lord had not left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. They were destroyed by fire from another world, not destroyed in eternal fire, but the historical catastrophe wiped them out. But even they will be restored, according to Ezekiel 16.55. But in this section, Paul tackles the rationale on the part of some Gentile Christians and perhaps the teacher who defines Israel by law observance that only a remnant of Israel will be finally saved, those being the relative few who are incorporated into Christ through faith in Christ. But I ask this question at this point. How then, if only a remnant of Israel will be saved, does Paul conclude after the full argument in Romans eleven twenty six that all Israel will be saved, including the part of Israel hardened at the present time and who are enemies of the gospel, he says in Romans eleven twenty eight, enemies of the gospel, but still beloved for the patriarch's sake. Romans eleven twenty eight. To answer this question, the distinction must be understood. A differentiation of consciousness has to be understood between history and eschatology. In the present juncture of the two ages, the evil age and the age of Messiah that's clashing together right now, Israel, by and large, is not finding what they seek. Rectitude, righteousness, grace, peace. Though a remnant exists by God's election of grace. Now listen carefully. The idea of the remnant is picked up again by Paul not to say that because there's only a remnant, the rest of the sands of the sea are going to hell. He's saying quite the opposite. Paul takes up the idea of the remnant to show that only a remnant will be, not just to show that only a remnant will be saved, but to show that the present remnant is a representation of of the salvation of the whole. If the root is holy, then so is the whole tree. If the, if the beginning part is holy, then the whole thing is holy. He's, that's what his whole thing is in Romans 11. Now, Elijah, 
came down to the fact, he came down to this realization, I alone am left, and the rest of Israel is going to hell. But in Romans eleven seven, God intimated to Elijah the disclosure, the disclosure of the 7,000. I have for myself, listen carefully, I have reserved for myself 7,000 with regard to which Karl Barth, in his book, I'm so glad I read the commentary on Romans. Listen to what Barth said on this. I agree wholeheartedly. I've seen it. I've seen it verified in the scripture. With regard to God saying, I have unreserved 7,000 for myself, this is what Karl Barth said, and this is the point. The answer of God to Elijah does not mean that there is a number of men who know God, but that there is no limit to the number of those who are known by him. Salvation is to be known by God. God-approved livingness is to know God. Salvation is to be known by God. God knows them that are his, even if his don't know, they're known by God or don't know God. I'll show you that. Again, Karl Barth, the best insight he had in all that commentary on Romans, which he revised six times between 1922, the year my father was born, and 1933, just before he was bounced out of Germany. He said, the answer of God to Elijah does not mean that there is a number of men. Just like Revelation 7 doesn't mean there's exactly 144,000 people. It's not the number. The idea isn't, he says 144,000, but when he looks, he sees something that can't be counted. There is no limit to the number of those who are known by him. It does not mean, second half of the quote, that there are just 7,000 men upon whom God has mercy. It means that his mercy is infinite. Elijah, not only are you not alone, but the 7,000 people I've reserved to myself is metaphorical for the fact that I'm going to save all of Israel. Now preach that. So, I'm going to finish this. Sorry. Got to finish this. this. I gutted this out today and yesterday and months ago, and I'm going to finish it. So, with regard to the first observation of Barth, here's how I test it. First of all, his first observation, God doesn't mean, uh, his uh, intimation to Elijah doesn't mean that there is a literal number of men who know God, but that there is no limit to the number of those who are known by him. I tested it, and I said, is that true? With regard to that first observation, is it is true, according to the Scripture, that people knowing God is not the issue in salvation, but God knowing people. As Galatians 4.9 says, look there for a minute. Galatians 4.9 says this. Listen carefully. But he says, but now, having come to know God, this community of believers was known by God before they came to know him, but now they've come to know him. Why? Because in the same case with Paul, when God is pleased to reveal his son to you, he does. And then you begin to know God, and you get this tremendous urge to want to know him, that I may know him. And when you know him, you say, I don't have any confidence in any." Well, not one stitch of my own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes by the faithfulness of Christ. That shows you that you know him. Paul chides them. He is steaming. I want to teach Galatians because Paul is in a theological rage. Not against people, but against the false gospel that is enslaving them after he led them to Christ, led them to the cross of Christ. Now having come to know God, or rather, caps, all caps, to be known by God. The big issue is to be known by God. Having come to know God, or rather to be known of God, how can you turn again to the impotent and bankrupt elements? That means by observing the law of Moses... You are doing nothing different than worshiping the elements of this world, earth, wind, and fire. I hate to disrupt your favorite group. You're doing nothing different than worshiping the elements of this world as you did in your former pagan 
practices of idolatry when with John Lennon you were like Druid dudes. Lifting back the veil, playing mind games. So, having come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn again to the impotent and bankrupt elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You've been liberated. You want to be enslaved to them all over again? Salvation then has to do not with our knowing God, but rather with our being known by him. The Lord knows those who are his. With a somewhat tamer tone in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, Paul says, if someone loves God, listen to this, Romans, 1 Corinthians 8, 3, right before the Shema, right before he alludes to, listen up Israel, you will love the Lord your God. He says this, if, here's the tenses in the Greek too, if someone loves God, that's God-approved livingness. If someone loves God, it is because he or she has been known by him. It doesn't say if someone loves God, it's because they know God. It says if someone loves God, it's because they have been known by him. God initiated salvation to them. They love God because God knows them. And then the truth of the second part of the quote, where Barth says, and my first exposure to Barth, all the fundamentalist churches and the affiliations I belong to, the pastor said the same old, stupid, judgmental comment about Karl Barth. And they said, he's a neo-Orthodox person. And I thought, well, that must be terrible. What is that? It, and, and you know how much of this 31 volume, there's 31 books they've read of Christian dogmatics? Nothing! Zero! So I tested Karl Barth this time by reading it. When he says it does not mean there are just 7,000 men upon God whom God has mercy, it means that his mercy is infinite. Let me test it. All right, let's look to Romans chapter 11 and verse 32, and we'll close. So the truth of the second part of the quote, That what the Lord intended to say with the 7,000 oracle is that his mercy is infinite is borne out here in this little, which is the climactic verse in the entire book of Romans. For God has consigned all to disobedience. He's not making up a different all now than the all of Romans 5.18 where all, because of Adam's one sin, were brought under condemnation and the slavery to sin and the reign of death, and all are made alive, this is the same all. God has consigned all to disobedience, to have mercy on all. Disobedience, apathia, also means unbelief. God consigned all the human race to unbelief. Christ being made sin on the cross became the sin of the world's unbelief. Because my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is what the world believes in their unbelief. That God forsakes his creation. And he doesn't. And he didn't forsake his son. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, you'll know that I am he. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea. When I cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have forsaken me. In John eight twenty nine. I want you to know the father has not left me alone. He has not abandoned me. I'm saying that for a different, I will have become sin. I will have spoken in sinfulness of unbelief by saying, why have you forsaken me? Does that mean that he didn't experience something horrible? Yes, it means that he did experience something horrible. The unbelief and fearfulness of all the human race in believing the lie when he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God was in Christ reconciling those who believe to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So God has consigned all to disobedience to have mercy on all. Is his mercy infinite or not? It is. So in closing, so we see now how salvation is God loving and knowing us. 
And God approves livingness is us knowing and loving God. God is love. This is love. God loves us. He loved us first. We love because he loved us first. In other words, salvation, the overall plan of universal salvation through Jesus Christ, is God loving and knowing us. God-approved livingness is us through the Spirit knowing and loving God. And that means those who are known by God and who know and love him are the Israel of God in both praxis, deed, and in authenticity. Because in Galatians 6.16, peace and mercy be upon all those who follow after this rule. What rule? The rule of the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in your hearts for all mankind. They are the Israel of God. They are the Israel of God, which will one day be all of humanity because Israel is the people whom God has made and not they themselves. The sheep of his pasture, Psalm 100. As 2 Timothy 2.19 says, I'm going to say this just in turn again. I'm exploding something from the start. I'm going to give you the bomb from the start. Galatians 6.16 is the most brash and audacious thing Paul ever said in all of his epistles at the height of a theological rage born of love. He says the same thing and takes three chapters to do so in Romans 9 through 11, the identity of Israel. And it's everybody that God shut up into disobedience in order to have mercy on them. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. What makes you the people of God? Mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy me. And finally, as 2 Timothy 2.19 says, the foundation of God stands firm and secure. Having this double inscription, has a double inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. That's salvation for all. And let everyone who names the name of Christ, those who have been wakened to faith, Depart from iniquity. That's God-approved livingness. Amen. Happy Friday. Tomorrow's Friday.